So the listeners who know me personally have asked me why I don't talk about business on BU. Well, the reason is because it just didn't feel right. I was following my gut, my heart, and my intuition. And now I know that the time is now. So I'm really, really happy about a decision that we made at BU. And that is to create a spinoff channel. So if you go over to bu.supercast.tech, you will discover BU in business. On that platform, I will share all things sales, marketing, team building, attraction marketing, building a business without sacrificing your integrity, your values, your energy, and yourself. I did it the wrong way for a lot of years. I was the queen of hustle and grind. And yes, I did build a very substantial business that I was proud of, but it came at a huge cost. And a lot of women are out there building businesses, sacrificing themselves. I'm excited to share with you what I learned and the evidence I have to prove that that new way of building business as myself, the real version of myself, without being cookie cutter, without sacrificing what really made sense to me in my heart, how that brought me more growth and more income than I had ever made with so much less effort. I've lived through both the before and the after, and I'm excited to teach you everything that I figured out the hard way. I will save you years and years of mistakes and painful lessons. And I realize that now is the time to do that. I'm truly, truly, truly all in with this. And I can't wait to get into that with you and go as deep as you want to go. You'll be able to interact with me. You'll be able to make suggestions about episodes, ask me questions. And I think you're going to be very refreshed by what you see over there. It's not what you're seeing everywhere on social media and in other programs. I'm going to be so real and raw and honest with you. And my greatest joy is going to be empowering women to be hugely successful without feeling drained, without feeling that relationships are strained, and without feeling like there's nothing left for you. There's a better way to build. And I'm going to show you how. So meet me over on Supercast and we'll get started together. Hello, BU Collective. You have spoken and you continue to speak very loudly by showing me how important this topic is to you. So a few weeks back, maybe a month ago, we brought up this topic for the first time, the gray area drinker, the dependence or even addiction to alcohol, what that looks like, the feelings around it, the stories behind it. You know, I don't think I'm an alcoholic. In fact, I'm certain I'm not. And there's this other part of the story. There is this secret struggle. There's something that we're not talking about that's there. And so we had Jen Couch from Sober Sis. And those two episodes are still by far by a landslide, the most downloaded guest episodes since our start of BU. Now, it was only a month ago that we interviewed her. So there are episodes that have been around for seven months that were very popular episodes. 
and they still do not have even close to the number of listens as gens because of this topic. We hit a nerve in a good way. And you're telling us over and over again by sharing it with other people, by texting it to your friends, by putting it on your story. We need to talk about this. So I wanted to have Colleen Cashman on my podcast anyway. But because of what I just shared with you, I knew for sure that you want her on this podcast. Colleen is a dear friend of mine. We met about eight years ago. And the interesting thing that we didn't talk about on the podcast that I'm sharing with her permission is that what got in the way of our friendship was her alcohol use. I have shared with you before that I was in the past, a long time ago, married to someone who was addicted to alcohol and prescription drugs. And that addiction ripped my family apart broke my heart more times than I can count, caused me to not trust and triggered the old wound that I already had from childhood that I can't trust. And that marriage ended by my choice. I met Colleen right after that and loved her from the beginning, admired her, liked her, enjoyed her company. And there was just this thing between us. It was this elephant in the room, but she didn't even know there was an elephant. And it made me quite uncomfortable. And I wasn't the person then who knew how to share how that felt. And I was not confident enough to love her enough to be a loving interruption and share with her how I felt, how she was landing for me, that I wasn't able to connect with her because of this. And so I just did the cowardly thing and just quietly stepped away and left her from a distance. I saw online that she became sober and I was so proud of her. It's now been over a year and in perfect Colleen fashion, she's killing it. She's a natural educator. She's extremely intelligent. One of the funniest wittiest, smartest people I know, dynamic, creative, driven. And I'm not surprised at all that she took her experience and has now turned it into a movement. And she is not just inspiring and and telling women about her story. She has now become a certified coach. So Colleen Cashman is a life, health, and recovery coach. Oh, by the way, she was already before a plant-based cooking expert and yoga teacher. Colleen is the founder of Recovery University, where she offers an eight-week masterclass in sobriety for women ready to level up in their lives. Her clients develop the mindset and tools necessary to reclaim their energy, confidence, and focus. She supports them as they conquer limiting beliefs, develop healthy boundaries, and expand their resilience so that they can thrive. She is thriving. She is glowing. And she's here to share her story. We have a two-part interview. In this first interview, she vulnerably shares her story. But I love that it's not from a place of brokenness at all. You're not going to hear stories that are going to make you cry. Although that would have been very welcome by you and me. 
but that's not what wanted to come through in this interview. Colleen comes through so confident and so beyond the old story of addiction. And I'm inviting you to listen with an open mind and an open heart, even if you say, oh, no, 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 Jill, no, 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 that's not me. I don't drink too much. Or I'm more than the other group, the other episode that's just about the gray area drinkers. This isn't me. Colleen is sharing information that every woman deserves to hear. And some of it has nothing to do with drinking, nothing to do with addiction, nothing to do with alcohol. The lessons that she has learned about life, relationship, love, family, confidence, authenticity, and choosing herself are for every woman. I am so, so proud of my friend. Here's Colleen Cashman. There is nothing more inspiring than a woman being unapologetically herself. The answers are all in your heart. She's waiting, she's waiting, she's waiting for you to set her free. Welcome to BU Podcast. I'm Jill Herman and I am so glad you're here. I was broke, insecure, and craved approval. But with grit, hustle, and sacrifice, I still built a successful multi-million dollar business. 10 years in, burnout, I slowed down and looked inward. In that silence, I discovered that the same level of success could have come to me with much less effort and so much more joy. That's when I threw out the expectations of the world and chose to unbecome every single thing I thought I was supposed to be. And the real me was uncaged. It was far from easy. And in this podcast, I'll offer my entire journey as a roadmap so that if you're ready, you can finally be you. Okay, so here we are with my dear, dear friend, Colleen Cashman. You heard the glowing introduction already, um, but Colleen, I just want to say to you here how grateful I am that you are sharing this story, not just with me, but with all of these women all over the world. So we have listeners in over 60 countries and they have no idea what they're in for. I was just talking about you today, by the way. So I just, for the first time, hired an expert to help me do the behind the scenes SEO stuff and deep dive analytics into the podcast to find out who the listeners are and how do we grow it besides just organically. And I was telling him about you. And I said, I have the most exciting interview that I'm recording today. He's like, tell me all about it. And I told him, what I love about you is that you don't even realize how good you are. I told Sky today, I said, Colleen is the whole package. Like she's just doing this right now as a part of her own healing. And now she's going to help other people. But she doesn't know, and you don't know, Colleen, what I already see in you, that if you want this to be, you have this enormous influence in you that could help millions and millions of women because you've walked the walk yourself. You always, from day one, I've loved about you, you're transparent and completely just yourself. You always have been unapologetically. But then on top of that, you're super intelligent. You love to learn. So you're also knowledgeable and you're one of the best communicators I've ever met. You are witty, you're funny, 
You are super quick, as you know, you know this about you. So I'm excited to sort of show you off to people because as I told Sky today, I'm like, this episode will probably go viral. And I know that other people will want her on their podcast because of not just your story, but the way you deliver. And I mean, just texting with you is like the most entertaining thing ever. Like every, you guys, when you get a a text from Colleen, there's always going to be a few lines in there where you're like, why didn't I think of that? That was so funny. (laughs) So Colleen, thank you so much for who you are, for what you're doing in the world, for sharing your journey so transparently. We didn't go to coffee first and talk about this. You're talking about this with me openly in front of all these people. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. I'm, I think one of those people, I've always been open and I don't have a, a filter. So too much information is kind of how I roll. But it's also kind of, I think, a superpower. And it's not for everyone, but I love sharing and being real. That is how I connect with other people. You want to talk about our menstrual cycles? I can do that. You know, it just, it doesn't bother me. I don't have any, I'm not going to say I have a lack of privacy because that would sound like I don't have good boundaries. I'm just comfortable with even uncomfortable things. And uh, it kind of excites me to get into when feelings start coming up, that internal mechanism to shut down. I just don't have one of those. I never had that mechanism to stop (laughs) drinking either. So (laughs) we're going to talk about that. I don't have a cutoff switch. (laughs) (laughs) So it's here's what's interesting. As we were just talking a second ago, we were talking about vulnerability and authenticity and transparency. But yet we're going to talk about that you did have this sort of secret struggle. That's interesting, right? Because you are such a transparent, unapologetically yourself kind of self-expressed woman, yet you are secretly struggling. So what we're going to do for everyone listening is I want this could be five episodes and Colleen's going to end up having her own podcast, by the way, and I will be first to sign up. But in this first episode, I asked Colleen to just share her story. When did this start? She'll share all of that. And then part two, what you don't know about her. Well, I did just mention it in the intro, but Colleen isn't just someone sharing her story. She's also now become someone who is teaching and mentoring mostly women, but people who also find themselves in this situation. And this is interesting because Colleen, I told you that the podcast is about seven months old and by far, and I mean by a landslide, the most downloads have been from the episode we had from Jen Couch about gray area drinking. I had never heard that term before. What I'm excited about, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, the way I'm looking at this is, okay, gray area drinking was one thing, but there's another secret. There are women who are further than gray area drinking, and they're either putting themselves in that category because they're afraid to say that it's worse, or there's no safe place for them to talk about what if it's worse. And so let's just hear your story. And in part two, we'll have you really coach us and educate us on the science, et cetera. All right. I'll start with something that you said where I've always been open and The tricky thing with alcohol use disorder is, and that's how I frame it. I don't frame myself as an alcoholic or a recovering alcoholic. I think putting labels on people is bias and stereotype. And I don't have a problem with people that operate that way. I could go to an AA meeting and stand up and say I'm an alcoholic and laugh and and connect with people. You know, it doesn't bother me. But I also think it's important to use language to empower. Mm-hmm. So I identify as somebody who was suffering from alcohol use disorder. And when it comes to me as a person being open and vulnerable, 
what the funny thing is that it's kind of sad, but I used to feel like I was being honest. The problem was I didn't understand there was a problem. So if you and I were talking, I would say, I don't lie about anything except how much I've had to drink. That's it. I would lead with that at a party. I would never, and I'm telling you the truth. I will lie to you about how much I've had to drink. See, and the thing is, you're right. You did used to say that, but I always thought you were joking. And you were serious. You were being honest. Colleen, the first time I met you, you had this funny cup, a tumbler. There's a chance this is vodka? Yeah, it was a water bottle that said there's a chance this is vodka. And I'm like, this is the funniest bitch I've ever met. And you're like, okay, there actually was vodka in that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, and I don't know if some of that was actually a negative reverse psychology. You know, my kids would pick up a water bottle and they're like, can we have this? And I'd be like, no, it's full of vodka. Now, there wasn't any vodka in the morning or whatever, but I still, you know, I think it also became a defense mechanism. So it probably, I don't know. I I don't know. I just know that I didn't understand where I was. And in hindsight, that is the horror of alcohol use disorder is you become more and more isolated but really it's just from yourself. Other people's experience of you may or may not be problematic. They may not see the problem. They may not know what you're dealing with or that you are drinking or not drinking. The problem is the concessions you have to make to your own integrity. Basically, in my experience of alcohol use disorder, I had to trade my integrity for the next drink. And what that looked like and played out with is you know, a lack of boundaries. So whether it was as a parent or whether it would be in a relationship with my spouse or just with friends, my motto was always, I'd rather be thought of an alcoholic than open my mouth and prove it. So I didn't stand up for my own integrity, whether it be my needs, my morals, my values. I was trading that conversation for my next drink. I just wanted to keep things light and keep moving on. Because I didn't, you know, I didn't want anything to interfere with my happy hour, Um, whether I was drinking or not. I I didn't want to ruffle anybody's feathers. And so, you know, as much as you've seen me, you know, throwing down about food and my ideas about plant-based eating and all of that, that was a more professional level. On a personal level, I just, I avoided conflict and not all conflict is negative. So you asked about my story you know, I started as a normal drinker and I was for a very long time. And I don't demonize my years drinking. It was a lot of fun. It was real fun until it wasn't. And I think that's the the catch with alcohol use disorder is that at some point you you know you're chasing a high, you know, okay, I'm pouring a drink. I don't really want one, but maybe it'll fix my day then it doesn't. And then that just happens again. And your lows get lower. And your highs get lower. Everything just kind of gets a dark film over it. And so you just keep thinking that if you, you know, the next time it's going to be different, that you're going to start feeling better. I was super fortunate that I was able to be pretty smart. I wasn't out driving drunk. I wasn't doing things that would wreck my life. My problem was much more internal and, and just with myself. So let's start with how all of this started. I remember it was spring break of 2006 and we went on vacation and I never really came back from that vacation. 
it was the first vacation where my youngest child was, I wasn't breastfeeding anymore. And so I was able to drink and it was all very responsible. I was never drunk. I was not bad behavior, but we drank every single day. And it felt so good and it was so fun. And by the time I got home, I remember what would have been like a Sunday or a Monday night and the kids are in bed. And I remember thinking, I don't want this party to end. And why should it? And so I poured myself a cocktail on, I don't know, a Sunday or a Monday night. And pretty much that's when my daily drinking habit began. And again, I was not, I was a responsible drinker. I was up early. I was up during the night with my kids. I was never blackout drunk. For sure, I'd have too much at a party where everybody else did too, where it seemed normal. But in my day-to-day drinking, it started as one or two cocktails. And it, it just kind of gradually went up from there. And what I identify that shift is I had been operating with a belief that I needed a reason to have a drink. So we're going out with friends or, you know, it's a social event or a special occasion. And so you open a bottle of wine or you order a cocktail. But somehow I shifted to a belief that I needed a reason to not have a drink. So if there was, I didn't have to drive anywhere, then five o'clock, boom, you know, and if I did have to drive somewhere, then I'd have a drink when I got home, you know, whatever, no biggie. This isn't a problem. So There was a long time of my drinking where it was in control, except for the fact that I had to have it. And I remember thinking, you should just take the night off. And then that other voice would be like, why? Life's too short. You know, I was raised in a home where we are celebratory and we're told that you don't save the good dishes for the people you don't like at Christmas. You know, you eat on them every day. And I love that. I love that you were raised that way. Yeah. And Maya Angelou's advice, I am my biggest guest. Well, I took that and applied that to top shelf liquor. It's a Monday. Life is too short. And why not celebrate every single day? I had the belief that alcohol was celebratory. It was a reward. I'm so sorry to jump in, but I just want to pause because I don't know if you realize how good that was, what you just said. Like everyone listening I know was like, wait, what'd you just say? Wait, do I do that? You said that you were, I don't remember the exact words, but you mistakenly believed or bought into the idea that alcohol meant celebrating, that alcohol was celebratory. And I've never heard anyone say that before, but that's so powerful because so many women also are being responsible. They're not blackout drunk. They're not hurting anybody. But as you said, every day they still feel like in order to celebrate, they have to have a drink maybe to prove they're celebrating or they, they need to reward themselves with that. So go on. Um, you were saying that, if I heard you right, that it flipped from before it was finding a reason not to drink. I had been operating that alcohol was for special occasions. But then when I did my little fancy math in my head and applied Maya Angelou's advice that I'm my biggest guest and life is too short to not celebrate. So somehow that churned out a new belief that drinking alcohol every day was, you know, an expression of joy. And it did feel like that for a very long time. And 
had I known what the trajectory is, is that alcohol is addictive and the use disorder is progressive so that it's impossible to maintain that feel-good feeling. And you're chasing a high that gradually is getting lower and lower. So grandma's advice that you shouldn't drink alone, that you should limit yourself to two drinks, that you shouldn't drink on weeknights, all of that advice to me, I was like, well, that's arbitrary and grandma's gone. So (laughs) I feel like I can honor her by having another glass of wine. I think she'd appreciate that because she lived with all these rules and it's the next century. We don't have to do that anymore. And I truly had no concept that I was painting myself into a corner. It felt happy. It felt joyous. And had I known that the more you drink, the more you need to drink, I might have had the motivation. That might have been all it took to say, you know what? I'm not drinking tonight. But I just didn't have a reason to not drink. And so as long as I was getting up when I needed to get up and I taught aerobics and Zumba and yoga and I had four kids and three dogs and a shit show and I loved the chaos. I loved my life, but I was running on all cylinders and I thought alcohol was just a part of that. And you are, I mean, for those of you who don't know, Colleen, she is one of the most high functioning, super achieving, without saying she is, by the way, people. Like she doesn't make a big deal out of it and say, oh, I have so much I'm doing. But she's like making amazing homemade food every single night. She has four children who are birthed pretty close together and super involved mom. As she said, she said, I taught yoga, but she's like very, very experienced yoga instructor and is very fit herself. And oh, by the way, I think I'm going to go run a marathon, right? So it's interesting to hear that though, because, and I wanted to highlight that because you were doing all that while, like you said, having a couple of drinks every night and it certainly wasn't hurting other people at the time. Right. And as you said, you didn't realize the trajectory, like how it really was going to end. And a lot of women listening right now are there, right? They're right there. And they're like, it isn't really that big of a deal. So thank you for, I actually didn't understand that when you said the disorder is progressive, right? I didn't realize that. I know that may sound silly, but I guess I didn't get that. Yeah. What happens is tolerance. Let's, let's just talk about tolerance. I used to be able to drink quite a bit. And I wasn't the tipsy. We all know that. Well, you're one of those gals who's like, I just drank half a drink. I think I'm drunk, you know, and I'm on my fifth. Like, could you pull your shit together? (laughs) I mean, come on, Barbie, let's go. This is ridiculous. So I could always tolerate a a large amount of alcohol. And what I thought that meant was that it was in my DNA. It was in my genes. I must be lucky that, you know, my liver processes alcohol so well, and I can keep up with the frat boys without the beer gut, you know, woohoo. And the truth is tolerance is not a sign of a high functioning liver. Tolerance is a sign of addiction because the more you drink, your brain learns how to compensate for the alcohol. And just like a muscle memory, like riding your bike, We go through these cleanses and we take, you know, the 30 day challenge and we quit drinking to reset our tolerance. Well, that's like putting the training wheels back on your bike and thinking you need them. You'd never need training wheels again. Once your brain learns how to compensate for that alcohol, that's a skill. That's a muscle memory. It's not a high functioning liver. And so that was the first thing I didn't know. So the more I was able to drink, then the more I needed. 
So what happens when we drink, and I know your gal that was on here, sober sis, was talking about this, but I'll reiterate it because you can't hear it too many times. When you drink, it stimulates two to 10 times the normal amount of dopamine in the brain. So it's a high reward activity. The problem is the brain's not going to let you do that because you might be getting married in Vegas. I mean, we've seen how that goes. You know, <laughs> it, the brain compensates for all that dopamine by releasing dynorphin, which is the I don't give a shit neurotransmitter. And so the more we drink, the more apathetic the dynorphin is apathy. So the more apathetic we become. Also, dopamine is, it's not just a feel-good hormone. It's the feeling of more. We crave more yes. and more and more. Yep. So the higher our dopamine levels go, the more we want to keep doing that. It's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So our dopamine levels are high. We keep drinking. Then the dynorphin kicks in. And for me, what that looked like is I'm three glasses through a bottle of wine. I don't need more. Cognitively, I know that. I probably have a buzz. I'm probably like, I probably would feel better if I stopped, but who the f- cares? You know, what does it matter? And who has leftover wine? Where do you even buy that? My identity, we don't have leftover wine in this house. So the d- dynorphin kicks in. The other thing that happens is that alcohol is a depressant. And so when we have that first drink, we do feel calm and relaxed. And so it feeds that belief that alcohol relaxes us. The problem is, once again, our trusty little brain is there with our survival mechanism, and it can't let us get too relaxed or we'll forget to breathe. So it releases stress hormones like cortisol and adrenaline. And you talked about this with Sober Sis, about how you go to sleep, alcohol makes you a little sleepy or a lot sleepy, depends on how much you drink. And then you wake up in the middle of the night, restless and agitated and negative. Well, that's those stress hormones. And those stress hormones like cortisol lasts a lot longer than the buzz. So as the buzz wears off, now you're just left with high levels of apathy and high levels of stress hormone, except you don't know that's what's going on. And so you start to project, at least this is for me, I honestly didn't think I had a drinking problem. I knew I drank too much. I get that. But I really thought the problem was everybody else's bullshit. My husband, he don't care about me. My kids, assholes. Um, (laughs) All my friends, uh, do I even have any? Like, whatever. So you start projecting that negativity because your brain wants to make a story and you don't want the story to be the connecting the dots with the alcohol. So you create other stories and Mm -hmm. you create other drama in your life. And then it just snowballs. And Colleen, as you said too, right? You're also looking for another dopamine hit. Your brain loved that. Well, and that's the, the final piece. The more you flood it with external sources of dopamine, like alcohol or, you know, anything, sugar, caffeine, all of that, the less your brain makes it on its own. So by the time you get into true addiction, you know, and it's a fuzzy gray line. There's no clear difference between I want a drink and I need a drink. But your brain stops producing dopamine on its own, which is why early sobriety can feel really low because your child smiles at you, your brain doesn't fire. The The experience I have now of noticing the smell before the rain, 
looking at an empty clothes basket on the floor and not seeing that somebody left it there, but realizing somebody put the clothes away. My brain is firing again, but it had stopped firing. And so then that all of that just perpetuates the need for the next drink because nothing is making me happy. So happy hour can't come soon enough anymore. I'm now I'm just getting through the day. I'm not even enjoying it. I'm just checking the boxes so I can tell myself I've earned happy hour and I'm not connecting the dopamine and all those brain chemicals, the the brain chemistry. That's when we feel connected. We may actually still be around people, but we don't feel seen and heard. That's a feeling. It's a perception. I was at a party this weekend with my family and I have had a story for a long time. And I know this isn't true, but we're, we're just going to cut it down to bare bones. My brother and my sister-in-law don't like me. I, I just have always believed that. And so, of course, that confirmation bias, anytime I'm around them, I'm looking for proof that they don't like me. Well, now that I've been sober for 15 months, I was around them and all of that has just melted away. And instead of seeing that maybe they're not talking to me enough or whatever, I'm enjoying every interaction that I do have and I'm feeling loved and welcome and in their home and connected with them. And you know, the truth is, I bet if I asked my sister-in-law, she would not be experiencing me in any different of a way. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I would say that there's a chance too that now that you're sober, they're finally able to connect with you. Like they finally get the real Colleen. But I'm also saying that they may not even notice. It's the way I feel. That is the perception. Whether or not they are actually connecting me is a whole nother thing. I didn't feel connected. And so I was projecting that onto my relationship. Absolutely. I can't say if you did a scientific analysis of our interactions this weekend, that it would have really been any different than, you know, say two years ago, Mm -hmm. the way I felt about those interactions and what I saw and took away was much very positive and very connected versus looking for, you know, rejection where it, it didn't exist. Yeah. And now you are feeling safe in your own body. You are feeling all the things you might have been looking for outside of yourself in yourself. So it's very easy then to recognize them in other people and recognize them in those relationships. Well, and that brings up another point, you know, and this gets kind of deep. I would say that one of my biggest things that I was struggling with was loneliness. And I think I've always been vulnerable to insecurity and feeling left out, you know, just some of the way we moved a lot when I was a kid, lots of different schools. I always kind of felt like I was on the outside looking in. And so as an adult, I created my life to make sure that I was never alone. And I remember having a conversation and it kind of got a little harsh. And that person said to me, you are a lonely person. And I immediately responded with, I've not peed with the door closed in 15 years. I would love to be a lonely person. You don't know what you're talking about. But the truth was, I was really lonely and I was afraid to be alone. And what that looked like when I was drinking was I needed a babysitter. The minute I was left alone, that was the saddest part of it. 
that was the saddest part of it is that when I would have an evening where I was by myself, kids are busy or they already have rides. I knew I had about two hours from first drink to bedtime because I would drink. I could not regulate my drinking. Once I opened a bottle of wine, I could finish that in an hour. And then I was done for the night. I was lucky in that I didn't keep drinking. I would just drink myself to sleep. And here I, you know, I I still remember uh, a trip that I took by myself for the first time. I left my youngest, I had four kids. And the first time I ever went away, I went away to a Zumba certification, you know, and they had the pants with the tassels and that's so fun. (laughs) And so this mother who's overwhelmed and super busy, I get a weekend away. Now, if you say that to people, they'd be like, yes, that sounds so amazing. I didn't know what to do with myself. And I drive the four hours and check into the hotel and ordered myself food and drank a bottle of wine, threw up the food and went to bed. Now, does that sound like what I deserved? You know, I didn't know how to be alone. And those behaviors when I was by myself, that's why I surrounded myself with kids and responsibilities. That was a coping mechanism and a positive one. You know, you can't do more in life than do your best to cope with your shit. But eventually the shit caught up with me and learning how to be alone has been my greatest joy since I quit drinking. I have to say that's the takeaway. I'm no longer afraid to be alone. And my husband knows it too. I'm just like, I'm not afraid to be alone, Buster. So you better be nice to me. (laughs) You better appreciate what I'm doing because I'm not afraid anymore of anything. Oh, I love it. So I think most women can identify with that, whether they drink or not, whether they have addictive type behavior with anything. I bet you most women, if they're honest, understand what that feels like to be afraid to be alone, to feel isolated, to feel rejected, all of that. And I can very much relate to that. I know there have been many situations where I would be with people, but I felt alone while I was sitting there. And I felt like I didn't know how to be in the group. They don't really care what I have to say, probably. They're probably thinking, what did she mean by that? Or I, I felt like I had this lens on me all the time. And I know now, of course, that was just all my own stuff being projected. It's because I didn't feel comfortable and I didn't feel safe in my own body. And that's why I always felt that way. And I appreciate you too sharing the story of when I could really feel that when you were sharing that going away for the certification, excited to get away and then getting there and like, I don't even know how to be. And so when you go back to your story, maybe take us through what it looked like from the time of, I'm having a couple of glasses of wine I'm pretty much drinking every night, but it's not a huge problem at all. You know, the kids have rides. I'm not hurting anybody, but I I do realize that I want it every night because I'm celebrating. I'm living for the day, so to speak. When did it go from that to you describing you're polishing off an entire bottle or did it get worse than that? When did it sort of start going south, so to speak? I think I was able to maintain for a long time and fellow drinkers will understand the one bottle, you know, for a while I uh, would buy the mega bottles. You know what I I mean? There's more than one bottle. There's probably two in there. And I quit buying those because I, at least if I opened one bottle of wine, that was as bad as it could be. 
And I maintained that for probably 10 years. Most nights, I drank the equivalent of a bottle of wine. And what's weird is it's not just the alcohol. Life had also begun to change. You know, my children were leaving more and more. They didn't need me. So the more time I had, it wasn't just that I was drinking during that time when I was alone, but it was how I felt about being alone. I I don't know exactly when things went bad. It was just such a steady decline of feeling more and more isolated. And then for me, the end came when quarantine happened because now they took the bumpers off the bowling lane. You know, there was nothing keeping the ball out of the gutter. I had nowhere to go. And the stress of teenagers and online e-learning and having to be, you know, every morning before noon, I think I cried three times over the 15-year-old not wanting to get up and not wanting to do her homework. And we've got missing assignments and Fs. And and so I think it besides the alcohol, it was also external things that just created a tipping point. And all chronic diseases are like that. You know, there's no, whether you're pre-diabetic and you're eating too much sugar, there's no one thing that causes another thing. It's all the factors. So, you know, there was, my husband was gone more than ever because he's a physician and frontline. So he's gone. And then my kids are home all the time and nobody's happy. And I've got nothing out there to balance what I'm doing or offset. Yoga studios are closed. I can't get together with friends. So it all just came to a head for me in early quarantine. And again, I can't say that I really thought it was drinking. I really just was miserable. And what I love is, especially for people listening, what can you do? Little action steps, because you're never going to wake up ready and you're never going to wake up on that day and say, okay, today's the day. That's what I'm doing. Because by five o'clock, for sure, you change your mind. Okay, tomorrow. We'll do that tomorrow. But I had opened the door a little bit just in some of my choices of what I was listening and watching to. You know, I forced myself while drinking, fair enough, to watch a documentary on alcohol on Netflix. And I was listening to Dak Shepard, and he's open in recovery. He's an AA guy. And I had listened to Brene Brown. And actually, the tipping point for me was my sister had said, you have to read Glennon Doyle's Untamed. It Mm -hmm. will change your life. And I was scared to read it because I was afraid it would change my life. And either I got to quit drinking or maybe I have to get a divorce. Like, I don't know, but life is not going well. And I did. And then one day I was listening to her and I was like, today's the day. I'm done. Like, oh my gosh. If one more person starts talking about how awesome sobriety is, God darn it, I'm just going to try it. (laughs) Wow. So... And I love that book too. I have it right there behind me. I've read it twice. I'm a cheetah. Yes. I'm not crazy. I'm a... That's right. So I do want to go back. This isn't because I want juicy details. I'm picturing myself as a listener right now going, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Did you ever get past drinking the one bottle a day? Did you have anyone in your life? Did you ever see a point where you were seeing it hurting relationships or other people? Or did that never happen? And did you ever have anyone say to you, do you think maybe you should not drink so much? Or did everyone just tiptoe around it and avoid it? 
Okay. A lot of questions there. First of all, did I ever exceed the one bottle of wine a day? Yes, I did. What that looked like was I always was hydrating and I would often put vodka in there. And if I had to share a bottle of wine with my husband, my half wasn't going to go far enough. So at some point, probably in the, I don't know, maybe a year or two, that habit started to creep in. So that wasn't like every night, but more and more, I would also be supplementing my intake, especially if there was people around, because once again, I'd rather be thought of an alcoholic than to prove it by opening my mouth. So I often had vodka. And I remember listening to a Goop podcast and they advertised Kettle One Botanical Vodka. Now, pause for just a minute because this is part of our cultural situation. You're listening to a podcast on toxic eyeliner brought to you by rocket fuel. (laughs) Ethanol is rocket fuel. So we are, you know, we are all about green and organic and, you know, what's the latest complications of the vaccine? And, you know, ooh, I can't eat that chicken. I don't know where it's, you know, what its mother was and what its pedigree was. And yet we're drinking rocket fuel like it's going out of style. So anyway, that's my rant. I bought Kettle One Botanicals and I was able to drink one bottle would last me two days. So I was drinking half of that. And I was like, holy shit, holy shit. Like, I don't even feel this. Like, what the hell? And then at some point I looked at the bottle and I realized it's less alcohol percentage than regular vodka. So then that in my mind, I was like, oh, yay. Oh, close call there. There's no problem. Look away, look away. It's all fine. But I did notice in the last six months to a year, a severe uptick in how much I could drink. And that's that tolerance thing. I didn't feel it uh, because the brain shuts down your dopamine. You know, at some point you, it becomes like Pavlov's dog. You don't even need the vodka. You just need to think that you're pouring vodka and the brain responds like Pavlov's. So I noticed that I was drinking a whole bottle every, a whole fifth of that stuff every two days. And I wasn't drinking wine too. But then if I switched to say Grey Goose, then a fifth would last me three days. And that was towards the end. That was like when I started feeling really bad too. I could no longer wake up and function. It was getting harder and harder to moderate my drinking at night. It was a battle. And then it was getting harder and harder to pretend like I was not hungover. Mm. Harder and harder to recover every single day. So my window of functioning shrank from, I might get up and be like, ooh, but before, you know, I'll go sweat that off in hot yoga or I'll go run. And then, you know, by nine or 10 o'clock, I've exercised, I've showered, I feel good. And then, you know, you have a productive day, but this was getting worse. Yeah, it was. And I feel like it probably would have continued. It had reached the point in the slope where it was a kind of a free fall. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the beginning, as you were saying, you didn't, there was nothing like on paper, so to speak, that really said this isn't a good idea. As far as you, when you looked outward in your relationships, everything was really fine, right? There was no damage being done. You were responsible. As you said, you weren't like passing out. You weren't, no one else would have said, oh my gosh, let's take that bottle out of her hand. She shouldn't have a glass of wine. Did there come a point in time where you did start seeing it in 
in relationships, either work relationships or friendships or family. Like, And the reason I'm asking is because I have a friend that said that she, everyone in her family told her once she became sober, that they all knew it was a problem, but they'd never said anything. They all knew it. But then I've heard other people say, and I experienced this with my ex, no one even knew. They actually didn't realize that that was going on because it was so hidden. How did it go with you? You know, I only know from my own vantage point, no one ever said that I had a problem. You know, we had a joke in my family. I had four kids. My sister had four kids. And I remember the way she told our mom at some point was, hey, mom, I'm going to rehab. That was code for I'm pregnant. And my mom goes, oh, God, take your sister with you. Um, but nobody ever, no, there was no intervention. Did alcohol do any damage? It for sure did. But I believe that most of it was because of what I was putting in or taking out perceiving. So, you know, my husband and I, we had a lot of conflict. And to be perfectly honest with you, one of the reasons that I decided to quit drinking was because I figured I was going to be getting another divorce. And I was not going into that with this on the table so that everything that ever went wrong, it would just be like, well, you're drinking. I knew that that would disqualify my feelings and my needs. Now, I was so wrong. It did disqualify my feelings and my needs for myself, not not across the table to anybody else. So... You know, I can't say my husband would say, oh, if she didn't quit drinking, I was going to leave her. He was gone all the time, but he certainly would agree that there was a lot of conflict and that alcohol was a part of that for sure. But did I, you know, I didn't go in drunken tirades and things like that. Once again, I would trade my integrity. I, I didn't want to be accused of alcohol being a problem. So I didn't pick a fight. Yes. Yes. I hear that. Do you feel if your kids were sitting right here, would they say, or do you already know this answer without asking them, that at any point in their childhood, they knew there was something off, but they didn't know what it was, or that they actually knew mommy drinks too much, my mom drinks too much? Because my kids, I don't know if I told you the story, but so, you know, my first marriage, Tony, he does use the word alcoholic, is an alcoholic. And when I realized that it was worse than I realized, it was because two of my kids who were little are the ones who pointed out to me where his hiding spots were. I'm like, and just the other day we were talking about this. I said, how did you know that, Julia? How is it that at five years old, holding your blankie, sucking your thumb in the middle of the night when I found you spying from the office door and I said, what are you doing, honey? Why are you not up? And she said, this is when I watch daddy. I said, what do you mean you watch daddy? And she goes, I'll show you. And I picked her up and she points with her thumb in her mouth. She points with the other hand at the cabinet. And I open the cabinet and I see a bottle of tequila. And I said, what? And she goes, daddy does this. And she put her hand up as if she were drinking. And I said, and she goes, and she had to have been less than five because she said, just like this, without a cup, (laughs) without a cup. And I said, daddy drinks out of that bottle? Mm-hmm. And I said, when? And she goes, at nighttime, I always sneak down and I spy on him. And I'm like, how did you know that? So I was asked people, did they tell you then or do they tell you now that they knew that there was a problem? Well, I have 
opened that door and invited them to talk about it. You know, no shame. As I came out about what I was doing with quitting drinking, it took me some time to feel comfortable enough to ask them. And honestly, I had I had the idea for a podcast episode. I don't know if too much has gone by, but I, I just think it would be fabulous to get all four of my kids and talk about it. And we have done that. In direct response to that question, Kyle, my 21-year-old, said, I knew that you drank a lot, but honestly, we kind of just used it to our advantage because what I would do, once I got to a certain point, I didn't want to be around my kids. So I wasn't out in the kitchen playing games. You know, I'd finish the dishes, I'd do my shit, and then I'd go to my room. So what it looked like for them was I was just gone. I would go to bed early because that was the other thing. Because it's so uncomfortable to stop drinking once you start because those stress hormone levels kick in, the apathy kicks in, it's really uncomfortable. It's withdrawals. So whether you're experiencing them in a drinking session and then you're trying to quit or you're experiencing them the next day, it's uncomfortable. So I could not stop drinking once I started to the point where I used to say, you know, I'm not an alcoholic because I'll go out to lunch with people and I won't drink because I can't have two glasses of wine and then go home and function and not keep drinking, if that Mm. makes sense. Again, I was a responsible drinker. So I would titrate being the chemistry major that I am. I would titrate, keep it going because I couldn't, I called it re-entry. Re-entry was so painful that I, I couldn't do it. So I would drink until I went to bed. So once I started drinking, I had about two hours between now and when my head's on the pillow. So back to the kids, that was probably, it was the absence and it's still damaging, Jill. I'm not going to say that my absence wasn't damaging. There were, how many conversations did I miss? How many moments did I miss? Too many to count, but I would disappear. And then the other thing back to my open and honest policy, I didn't hide the fact that there was a bottle of vodka under my sink in the bathroom and also another one, you know, back here. And part of that was my own defense mechanism. If I had multiple bottles open, I couldn't really know how much I was drinking. Wow. If that makes sense. So I would just, you know, you've been to our lake home. I had it everywhere. And then I didn't have to deal with it. You know, I just go to Costco and stock up and then it would last several weeks and I didn't have to be accountable for the fact that I probably drank it all, you know, I'm because I'm buying for the lake. Yeah. Well, who's at the lake? Dumbass you, you know, I love how I just love how real you are. I just love and I say this. I believe it's not through the lens of judgment. You never know. But just like I will tell you, there was shock when you said you had a bottle of vodka under your cabinet in the bathroom. And I was like. What? Like, Isn't like, that where everybody keeps their yeah, vodka? My honest reaction was like, what the we, fuck? I thought I was keeping it so the teenagers wouldn't drink it. I was being a responsible parent, Jill. I mean, come on, get with the justification. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, but I'm so glad you said that because that right there to me, it's like a record scratch in a good way. Like, like wake up people. This is what's happening. You have high functioning, high achieving, super successful, loving mothers who are dedicated, devoted parents and spouses and who are your friends and your family and they have a bottle of vodka in their cabinet in the bathroom. Like it doesn't make them a bad person. It's that, okay, I'm just going to say how I feel. I feel like that is like a cry for help. Like it's, 
to have it in the bathroom with you, it's just, it's just so shocking to me. My genuine feeling right now, you know, you should never feel sympathy for people, but, but my genuine feeling is I want to cry because I just feel that makes me sad to think that you had it there and hearing because we're friends. I haven't heard the story that you had it all over the house. And you're able to talk about this the way I can talk about my childhood. I talk about my childhood and people cry and they're like, what? I'm like, what, what's the big deal? Because I've processed it and I can, before I compartmentalized it, I was numb. But now I've processed it so I can talk about it like nothing. And you've processed and healed and that's why you're able to talk this way. But but truly, for me, it's like, because I love you, I'm like, oh my gosh, the fact that I didn't know that, you know, makes me sad. And I love seeing you. That's the the beauty of open communication like this because things get so normalized in your head and it's not until they're taken out of the context that you're used to them that you kind of see them. I still don't think that's a big deal because most people that I was around and hanging out with, theirs was under the bathroom sink too because like at the lake, I would keep it there because if I kept it in the kitchen, there wouldn't be any left. You know, the kids would, I was responsible parenting by hiding it and keeping it. But now that I say that out loud and I hear myself say that, I'm like, oh, yeah, maybe that would have been a little bit of a knock, knock, hello. But it, I, I didn't even hide the fact that it was in my bathroom. It was open. And when guests came to our lake home, you know where the vodka is. It's under my bathroom sink. And it was a big, huge, mega sucker, you know, yeah. and that was just normal. I was not embarrassed or ashamed of that because it had become so normalized that I categorize that under good parenting and moved on with my day. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the focus of this episode is definitely on alcohol, but I just want to add not that you need me to do this, but for, for listeners who either don't drink much or maybe there's a little judgment listening to Colleen, or maybe you're looking at yourself, a question to ask without any judgment of yourself is when Colleen talked about how she would escape to her room, how much she missed out on year after year after year. That's a lot. Many of you are doing the same thing without alcohol. You're doing it with food, right? You're doing it numbing on social media. You're doing it with sex. You're doing it with online shopping. You're doing it with consuming TV to avoid what's happening in the kitchen, to avoid the, the, what you don't want to experience out there. You're, some of you are doing it through journaling and spirituality and meditating, and that makes you better. But deep down, somewhere, you know, in the crevices of your heart and your soul that you are actually doing the whole spiritual bypassing thing and you are escaping through that or you're doing it through working out. Well, I mean, I'm being a good person because I'm in shape, but yeah, I'm, I'm not hanging out with my kids at all because I'm constantly working, working out, et cetera. So just, just keep that in mind. All right. So back to you, Colleen. So as we're wrapping up this first episode here with your story, you know, you're in quarantine, you realized you, you listened, you read the book by Glennon Doyle and you're like, that's it. I'm done today. The courage that that took, I know you're not presenting it that way, but it seems like it took so much courage or did the courage come later when the shit hit the fan and you had to actually not have the alcohol? No, you know, everybody's story is different. The only thing I felt was relief. And what I did for myself, knowing that that was day 3,472 that I woke up and said, I'm not going to drink. I knew better than to take my own word for it. I had to take action. 
So earlier I said, there are little actions that I took opening the door to listening to podcasts and, and listening to people that were sober where prior to that, I might've just been like, whatever, loser. Okay. But I actually was out for my run. It was 8.57 in the morning and I called the AA hotline and I said, I'm not in danger. I don't need you know emergency services, but I need help. And within a minute, they called me back and hooked me up with a temporary sponsor who basically held my hand that day and gave me some fabulous advice. Also, quite honestly, a few things that was were not good advice um, in ter- because of what I know about nutrition and everything. She said, you're going to have cravings, go buy jelly beans and just eat through it. It's fine. And <laughs> ultimately, I now know, well, that's just kind of shooting yourself in the foot. That's actually not the way to handle it. But the love and support and connection that I felt was connection is the antidote to addiction. So I felt seen and I felt heard and I felt like this person I don't even know knows what I'm going through and is with me and is I got her number and I can call her. And I didn't need to do that. I just needed to say it out loud with a person, even though I had never met that person. And so that's what I did. And even that first night, I committed to myself that this was going to be the best thing I ever did. And I'm not missing out. I'm going to find a way to make this exactly where I want to be. This is not punishment. So I showed up that first night for happy hour and I climbed up to the cabinet. You know, I had long since gotten away from decorative stemware because can't fit enough of of it in it. But I got up and got this beautiful wine glass and put my kombucha and I made myself a mocktail and I sent my texts, happy hour, bitches, you know, like I always did. And I just felt relief that I was no longer numbing and dumbing and making myself sick. So I never again wanted, I, I've never once had a, a situation where I'm like, oh, I really want to have a drink right now. I immediately started reading Quitlet, which that's in my new favorite genre. But I think the first book I read was Holly Whitaker's Quit Like a Woman. She's the one that pointed out the goop eyeliner situation where they're like, you know, this is bullshit in our culture because we're promoting alcohol everywhere. You know, there's wine sayings and memes all over the place. And we're drinking, it's kind of like the doctors who used to smoke cigarettes and wonder how everybody has lung cancer. I was picturing well, that. Drinking vodka and wondering why everybody's got mental health issues. You know, I mean, okay. You know, and that's the other thing with mental health issues. We go to the doctor for every time I go, I'm offered an antidepressant. I kid you not every single time I have a bladder infection. Well, that might make you depressed. I'm, I'm not even kidding. I get offered <laughs> drugs. And yet I've never said I lied for sure. I downplayed how much I drank, but I always admitted I was drinking. Well, how can you take an antidepressant when you're daily drinking a depressant? It's got the same changes to brain chemistry, you know? So this concept that alcohol, you know, if you're not hungover, that it's not doing anything, it's destroying your mental health. It's not even, you know, we're so focused on the DUIs and the domestic violence and cirrhosis of the liver way down. You know, that's like worrying about lung cancer when you're 20. Who the hell cares? Give me a sick. But it destroyed my mental health. And that is ultimately what the cost was for me. Mm. 
in the part two of this, I know you're going to go into more of the science and talk about, you know, why people get addicted, why they feel the way they feel, why they would crave it, how they can make the change that you made, because most people can't do what you did, right? They can't just, they're not going to just decide one day, oh, I read a book, I'm done, I'm good. And you're building a whole community and you've built a whole program for people who say, okay, Colleen, you inspire me. That's great, but I cannot do it like that. You need to help me. And I'm excited to dig into that. And I recommend everyone listening, even if you don't drink alcohol, because you and I have the same pattern with other things. For me, it's definitely sugar. It's identical to the story of someone who is addicted to alcohol. So I'm excited about that. So thank you so much for this past, uh, what, almost an hour. It's amazing. And we'll go into part two. Hey, you know what? In case someone doesn't hear the part two or before they hear it, I actually would love for you to share right now how people can find you. What is your website? How can they find how you can help them? Okay. Well, my primary website is Colleen Cashman. That's C-O-L-L-E-E-N. Cashman is K-A-C-H-M-A-N-N. So two L's, two E's, two N's. ColleenCashman.com. And then there will be a link on there to my recovery university. And that is just a subdomain. So it's just recoveryuniversity.colleencashman.com. All right, great. And so we'll have those links in the show notes. And um, I'm excited for part two. 